So, Sadie, what's been your summer binge this year? Well, my partner and I have a whole list of shows we're hoping to get through, mostly Star Trek. What about you? I've actually been traveling a lot, so I haven't watched too much TV, but uh, I have really enjoyed The Summer I Turned Pretty Season 2. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I always think that I'll catch up on a bunch of new stuff during the summer, and I'm really motivated to do so after going to SDCC, that's San Diego Comic-Con for the uninitiated. I would say humble brag, but there was nothing humble about how you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while I was there, I went to a panel about the the behind-the-scenes work in television. Hi, (laughs) I'm Jamie Barty, and I'm a visual effects supervisor for FuseFX in BC, in Vancouver. Oh, cool. So is it their job to, like, add CGI or other computer-generated effects? Or are they more on the building practical things for the set side of things, like on everyone's favorite summer movie, Barbie? (laughs) Special effects and visual effects are two different things. The big difference is special effects is on set. That's anything that you can touch and see with your eyes. So, you know, practical explosions would be a special effect. Stunt work and all that kind of stuff, like muzzle flashes, guns, all all of that stuff that you can see on set is a special effect. Anything created digitally would be a visual effect. I got to hear Jamie on a panel talk about a new show coming out on Amazon by Boots Riley called I'm a Virgo. Oh my God, is Beyonce finally coming out with another film? I don't, I don't get that. Beyonce's a Virgo, de doy. <laughs> okay, well, that's not what the show is about. I did a, a talk at Comic-Con for I'm a Virgo, which has a, a giant in it, essentially. It's, it's about the sort of coming of age story of a, a 13 foot tall black man in Oakland. So obviously he's not really 13 feet tall. So we do a little bit of work there. That is not at all what I thought a show with that title would be about. Right? But because it's about this impossible premise of a 13-foot-tall man, they obviously needed help in the visual effects department. And this somehow ties into math? Oh, yeah. So turns out basically every step of adding visual effects to a show or movie relies on all sorts of different math fields, even if the artists creating them don't realize it. Oh, so for this episode, we're going to get a peek behind the curtain? Exactly. Let's get these wizards of visuals to explain the levers that create these effects. Today, we'll cover the spectrum from least to most mathy in terms of the effects departments and see how it all comes together to make an unbelievable scene feel believable. But before we meet these wizards, let's not forget to introduce these muggles. (laughs) Oh, right you are. I'm Sadie Witkowski. And I'm Ian Martin. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, aka MC. This is the podcast where Sadie and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. And in this case, we're going behind the scenes to understand how Hollywood magic is made. And as we like to say on the show, it turns out you don't need a math degree to see how mathematics plays a key role in all sorts of unexpected places. In fact, sometimes you have to learn those math skills outside traditional academia. That was all a lot of self-training that I did myself. There's a lot of courses online, um, websites you can go to, a lot of it on YouTube. So anyone that is interested in visual effects, there's so many free resources and there's even better paid ones. Sometimes you just have to learn on the job. Let me tell you, taking a class about teaching is not the same as living the experience. (laughs) I bet. And we both know learning in any field is just a constant ongoing project. 
I'm still learning. There's always something new, which is actually the, the thing that kind of made me fall in love with visual effects, just how much of it there is and how many different departments. You can never know it all. It's huge. And it turns out that visual effects are needed in basically any show you see on TV these days. Visual effects is involved throughout the entire process these days with the amount of it that's used, the number of shows. It's it's integral, I think, to any production. Even the shows that you think don't have visual effects probably will have hundreds of visual effect shots because it doesn't have to be a, a big transformer or a crazy alien creature. It, there's, there's a lot of invisible work that we do as well to enhance backgrounds or tidy up certain things, remove things from shots, work that you, you'll, if we've done our jobs right, work that you'll never see, never know, um, never notice. Wait, so I've heard visual effects practical effects, and special effects. What's the difference? So practical effects are a type of special effects that are done in camera. Think puppets, miniature models, stuff like that. Then visual effects are generally understood to be things added post-shooting, like CGI. And that's really where Jamie focuses. But you mentioned that there's a pretty wide spectrum when it comes to mathematics and visual effects. The industry really is a spectrum from, you know, like when we talked about at Comic-Con, from 100% artistic, they don't know any math at all or don't need it at least, to the opposite where it's all math and they're not really involved with the end visual result maybe. They're not sort of putting those final pixels together. They're just worried about making stuff work and making the math right. And then we have everything in between. And I think you can sort of slot different departments along that scale from 100% art to 100% technical. Uh, different departments will certainly have differing amounts of math needed in, in terms of visual effects. So while getting the final visual effect requires a lot of computation, not everyone on the effects team needs the same amount of mathematical backgrounding. Yeah, the concept artists don't need to know how Adobe Photoshop works, just that it's a tool that allows them to create the images in their heads. Exactly. So where does Jamie see himself falling along this spectrum? So as a supervisor, I, I would sit myself right in the middle. I need to guide the look of the show or the shots and find the client's vision. But I also need to know how we achieve that. So I'm very sort of generalist in that respect. In fact, Jamie has this really great metaphor for his role in the whole process. He sees himself as a sort of head chef. For anybody who doesn't know what a visual effects supervisor is, in the world of visual effects. I, I use, like to use Gordon Ramsay as my uh, metaphor. So I, I'm Gordon Ramsay. So he has done some cooking in the past, you know, he's, he's, he's proficient in cooking, but nowadays he is the sort of mediator between the kitchen and the customers. And that would be myself. I would be between the client, who would be the customers in this analogy, and the kitchen would be the fuse effects team, like the, the departments that we have and the artists that we have who are actually creating the content. So the clients would tell me what they want and I would pass that along to the team who would then create it. So in the same sort of analogy, Gordon Ramsay's taking the orders, making sure the kitchen make it on a timely manner to a good standard. He'll be testing everything before it goes to the client. He'll be tasting it, making sure it's cooked to a good standard, you know, tastes great, all that sort of stuff. Um, and be the final approval before it goes out to the customers. And then the same same way. So Jamie is the conductor. He has a vision for the performance and works with all the musicians to make sure that vision is achieved. 
you would choose a musical metaphor. But yes, though I should mention that before supervising, he had a role in basically the last step of the whole process called compositing. I mean, my expertise is in compositing, which is the final step in the visual effects process. And a lot of supervisors do come from compositing because we're already responsible for those final pixels. You already have a bit of a knowledge of the previous departments that got you there and what needs to be done in order to get it to where it needs to go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I feel like we're skipping to the end. Why don't we go through all the departments in order and talk about the math in each? Sure. Let's take this step by step. And we can skip concepting since, as we mentioned, it's essentially artistic drawing of characters with no math directly involved, which means our first stop should be camera tracking. But before we get into what camera tracking is, let's take a short break. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways capitalism is, and more often isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, Capital Isn't clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capital Isn't, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. Now that we're back, let's get to how different steps in building visual effects depend on a whole lot of math. As part of my team and part of the, the Fuse Effects Studio, we will have lots of specialists that can help me in all their respective fields. The first department that uh, we normally go through is camera tracking, which would probably involve trigonometry the most. Oh, trig. All I remember are things like cosine, sine, and tangent, but the rest is a bit blurry. Can you trigonometry to remind me? <laughs> Trigonometry is the study of angles, or in this case, understanding the angular relationships between 3D figures as measured on a 2D plane. So then is camera tracking literally tracking where the camera was during a shot? Exactly. You need to know where the camera was in order to make sure the animations or other effects you're adding to the scene look correct. Yeah, so we would get the footage from the clients and we would need to camera track that to have a digital camera that represents the physical camera. So we'd have a little 3D world built, you know, maybe there's a road with some cars on it and a few buildings. So we would build all of that and then track a camera that does the same movement as the physical one. Once you have that, you can put anything anywhere within the scene, essentially. So maybe we do need to have a creature running down that road. That's where modeling would come in next and create the creature. Wait, before we get to the creature, how do they make sure the digital modeled camera is placed correctly? That's the trig, right? You got to understand how things are moving in the scene. Of course, it gets much more complicated than that. You, so you 2D track a load of points within the frame. So you'll have points that are further away in space that would move less than points that are close to the camera, just due to parallax. When you have enough of these points, you can sort of triangulate where they are in 3D space. And then from that triangulation, figure out where the camera would be. So it's a whole load of sort of trigonometry for that. It gets a lot deeper because there are things like um, different cameras have different uh, film sizes and different lenses will affect the result as well. And then every lens has lens distortion. So there's like all these different parameters that all come together. So that's, it's almost one of the m most math 
based departments but in terms of what we use in visual effects um it is just kind of tracking those 2d points and then it solves the rest but the math going on behind the scenes uh, is immense are there some ways to make this easier on the person doing the tracking like can you take measurements for how far away the camera is from the car or something and plug that into the computer's algorithm that's exactly what you can do and then you can even help it along a little bit by measuring things on set so you might be on set part of my job is to sometimes be on set and supervise the shoot to make sure that we're getting what we need to make it efficient uh, on the post-production side. And we would often get reference photography and like measurements of everything. So if there's a certain building, I'll measure the size of the building. So now we can tell the software, which is normally 3D equalizer, but there are some others like PF track and Synthize. You can tell the software that I know these two points that I've given you, I know they're 100 meters apart. So you can get scale correct as well then when it does finally solve. Yes. So lots of numbers involved with that. So once you have the scene set with proper camera tracking in place, what's the next step? Next in the typical pipeline would be creating 3D models that are rigged and animated. Rigged? Like a carnival game? (laughs) Yeah, that's not it. Rigging is how you add the points of articulation to an animated figure or model that you're using in the visual effect. Rigging which is a department, once you have a character that you've created in 3D, so you'd normally sort of create them in like a T-pose, somebody then needs to give that character bones and controls in order to move that character around. So before we can animate that character, it needs to be rigged. So these artists, so almost struggle to call them artists because they are are definitely on the technical side of things, uh, normally won't be involved at all in sort of the final look of something. There's almost sort of no artistry, I'm doing air quotes, because they just need the rig to move correctly. They just need it to work. Oh, that sounds really technical. And while more points that you add to a rig give you more freedom in how you animate a character, it also gives you more points that you have to keep in mind and adjust as you start working on that animation. And if you add too many points, it becomes hard to track everything and make it look natural which is why you have to be selective with how you set up the rigging so that it makes sense for the animators. Sometimes rigging and animation overlap quite a lot, and the people animating might do their own rigs. People rigging might do their own animation. Makes sense. These two steps seem like they're really tied together. So what's the math for this step? That's a lot of linear algebra to sort of perform transformations in 3D space. So translations, rotations, scales, that kind of thing. Um, And then calculus, which is used to sort of create smoother animations and to calculate like the trajectory of objects. But even at that point, again, a lot of the math is almost obscured from the artists. It's so funny that creating these characters requires so much computation and mathematical work, but the artists and animators can be quite removed from that aspect. Totally. These folks aren't actually doing the math because it's built into their tools. So even more behind the scenes from the artists, there are these amazing mathematicians and scientists and programmers working to develop the tools that are then used by the creatives. Behind the behind the scenes. The animators are probably less, much less concerned with, again, how it's working, and they just need to know that it works. And they, you know, I need the arm to be here, I need the leg to be there. Yeah, I think a lot of this work has become very point and click and dependent on GUIs. That's the acronym for graphical user interfaces. Not that it's always been this way. And in fact, if you go far enough back, you wouldn't even be able to see what you're animating. You would just have code on a screen and you would move this 
point in space to this next point in space and just visualize it until you then hit the button, wait an hour and yeah, print it to film, you know, if we go back far enough in order to project it and actually have a look kind of thing. Nowadays though, yeah, it's all very real time. Um, you might have a character that's very, very detailed, in which case you would create a less detailed version in order to keep it real time so that they can work efficiently. You know, in order to see a final animation, it needs to be in real time and they need to be able to work in real time just to keep that feedback loop fast. So we first have to do camera tracking so we know where the camera was compared to the action on screen. Then you need to create, aka model, the creature or figure and rig it with movable points. And then the animator starts actually animating the figure. So then what's next in the visual effects? Next would be the lighting, shading, and rendering to make the figure actually look realistic. This is where the effects part of special effects comes from. And of course, this has specialties as well. Like you have one person who's good at animating fur or hair, and another who is really good at creating water or fire. And you'd often specialize within the effects department as well. You'd have someone who's great at fire, who knows fire inside and out. He knows that solver. He knows how to make it do what it needs to do. Uh, that's why that, that's probably the heaviest in terms of math usage is the effects department, because they've got all these different sub areas of effects um, that make up everything that they do. So you have to create fire or water or smoke or whatever else is needed. And once the textures for that thing are in place, you then do the shading so you can start adding the correct lighting to match the scene. And then uh, once we have the textures and the animation, yeah, we would send it to the lighting department who apply all the shaders. They make wet things feel wet. Um, refractive things have refractive properties and, you know, uh, everything look and feel correct and then apply all of the lights needed. It's like a digital version of the real world lights in the same way we had the digital version of our real world camera to get everything as accurate as possible. Huh, so you have all the real world lights set up and just like with camera tracking, you have to model fake lights so that the light sources in a scene still make sense. And this is another part of the process that's definitely more refined these days. So um, before computers were sort of faster and before the programs were smarter, it was, it was a very creative process and you'd have to dial all of the lights to almost per shot to kind of make each character work. Whereas nowadays we have something called physically based rendering Physics-based rendering, usually abbreviated to PBR, uses a lot of complicated calculations to make sure that the character's hair, for example, has movement and texture that moves based on the laws of physics, and thus in a way that looks realistic. All right. So once all the textures and shading are set, then you render the image, right? Right. And that's when you can move on to the lighting. So once your lights are set up and you've got all, all your textures and shaders, you sort of then run it through the renderer, uh, which is where it takes all of that stuff and it computes angles of incidence and, and it computes things like refraction. And now we have um, global illumination. So this is something we didn't have before because it was too computationally expensive. I know we're a math podcast and not a physics podcast, but the amount of physics and therefore math required to create the correct illumination blew my mind. So when a, a ray of light hits an object, 
it would bounce off that object and carry with it some of the properties and essentially so if you had like a bright red ball against a white wall that white wall would pick up some of the red from the bright red ball and that's called global illumination so that that means that every single ray of light now needs to bounce multiple times um, for that red to scatter from that first bounce from that first hit to the wall so that is very expensive to calculate so before we had things like global illumination each pixel would almost just be sampled one time whereas now that one pixel might then create a hundred bounces so now you've got two million pixels times a hundred bounces per pixel that might only bounce once it might bounce two or three times if it needs to in order to scatter properly around the environment um so yeah that gets very computationally expensive um especially when it's checking not just for the, the angle of incidence and number of bounces, but then you've got color and like we said, refraction and specularity and um, roughness. Like there's all sorts that goes into this final pixel. Um, and that's, that's all it's doing is just doing a lot of math to give you a color at the end of the day per pixel, just a red, green, blue um, value to give that pixel a color. And it's doing that 2 million times just to get one frame. Um, so sometimes these renders can run for days, you know, if it's a very um, heavy scene. Wow, this reminds me of listening to someone talk about creating the scene in Coco where he first sees the land of the dead. There were apparently like 7 million lights involved, and it took years to design and create it. It's an intense amount of computation for these kinds of things. So it makes sense that as our computers have gotten faster, we expect more and more of these computationally expensive effects. Totally. So once they finish getting the lighting set and rendering the final image, how do they put it all together for the final product? That's where the compositing comes into play. So once everything's in sort of a two-dimensional flat image state, that's where we send it to compositing. And that compositing is just sort of uh, Photoshop for video. So we combine all of these 2D elements together. There might be the original plate of the uh, plate is what we call footage, like the, the, the original plate from the um, from the client of the road and the cars. Uh, we would get the render of the creature. Maybe the client had some green screen people that they wanted to put in the background. So we would take the green screen people. Maybe we'll pull um, generic elements off of a out of a library of like dust elements and um, things like that. Maybe there's a uh, matte painting, which is sort of single frame Photoshop work. So maybe we did a, a background extension and, and, and compositing brings all these elements together and creates the final pixels that we then send to the client and it should look amazing. Wow, that is so much work by so many experts and generating huge amounts of data just to put together the final pixels that go to the client. Yeah, isn't that wild? The show or movie team that hires the visual effects team only need the final product. So they might not see the gigabytes of data produced to create that final product. The effects data is massive. Every frame of a smoke simulation or fluid simulation or a fire or something can be in the hundreds of gigabytes. So you're taking all this data and then rendering it so that maybe each frame is if you're lucky, a gigabyte. If you're unlucky, it's maybe 10 gigabytes, but that's per frame for the compositing team for them to finally output the frames needed, which are maybe, you know, like 10 megabytes big. Um, so you're just sort of taking all of this data and trying to make it smaller and prettier for the client and for the final product. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my computer purchased approximately 10 years ago definitely does not have that kind of storage capacity, but at least they can wipe everything once they've turned in the final product, right? 
Mm, not exactly. We have to. We have to archive everything because you never know when they might come back and ask for a change or possibly there's a season two. Oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But wow, that's a lot of material to save for a potential season two. I thought so, too. But there are ways they can condense some of that material so they don't need whole warehouses of servers. So it sounds like Jamie is really proud of the work his team did for I'm a Virgo. Did he have a specific favorite scene that really showcased their work? I think it is uh, in episode one. There's a, a big scene where he's um, he's just met his friends and he goes out for the first time and he's riding on the back of this car and they end up in they call it the sideshow. It's like a car show in a car park. And they sort of do some burnouts in the in the in the car park, sort of show off. But because he's so big and heavy, he tips the car over and he's like hanging off the car and there's smoke going everywhere because of the burnout. And, and that's such a fun scene to work on. There's so much going on. But also that scene involved every department and became very nearly hundred percent CG. But I'll give you a clue, it's not that scene that had a, a fully CG shot. Turns out that even a show whose main character is a 13-foot-tall black man can get away with a lot of integrated special effects and only had one scene that was completely computer-generated. For example, in I'm a Virgo that we, we met on and spoke about, we did close to 250 shots for that show um, across seven episodes. Only one, a single shot, was CG, 100% CG. And that's the only 100% CG shot in the entire show. So um, I challenge anyone to try and figure out which one it is. Challenge accepted. But back to that scene from episode one, I should also mention that the main character is named Cootie. Cootie's supposed to be really, really big. The actor that played Cootie is a guy called Jarrell. He's not really, really big. He's fairly average sized. Sorry, Jarrell. Um, so in order to make him look big, they, they created a miniature car on set. So he is sitting in a miniature car they had up on its side um, on this rig and they are spinning it around in a car park. Like they're trying to get as much of it in camera as possible. So the director... Boots Riley. So Boots tried to get as much of the scene done as a practical effect? Oh, yeah. But if they could do it with physical effects and tricks of the camera, they would. But some scenes just didn't quite give them the effect that they wanted, so they turned to Jamie's team. So we ended up spinning this car faster. We added the background. Um, we added the ground, the car. Because all the lights around them are now spinning faster, the shadows on the car weren't moving correctly, weren't moving accurately, because we ended up spinning it three or four times faster than they could do it on set. So now we had to create a digital car so that the lighting is correct on this digital car and, and the ground and everything's work, the shadows from the car on the ground, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how, we, how it gets more complicated. Um, so at the end of the day, yeah, that's, that scene ended up being mostly digital with just Cootie left. He's the only sort of real thing hanging off a digital car in a digital environment, surrounded by digital lights with digital smoke sort of going through it. Yeah. So it involved a lot of departments. That was a, a massive sequence to work on. It was great fun. The result was great. They used it intensively in the trailer. So I think they enjoyed it too. Don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for more about special and visual effects, some of the effects that Jamie worked on for the show, I'm a Virgo, and how you can support the ongoing WGA SAG strike. And if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage, 
mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. That's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics or statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewit at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy for his production on the show. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. How well do you know Taylor Swift? (laughs) Personally, not at all. By the way, every time I read that, I was composting. <laughs> Jamie's job is comp. They take the old effects and they just till them into the to the leaf litter to make sure that they will create fertile ground for the next season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting into character, <laughs> you know? Yes, I do know. Okay, <laughs> that's <so> natural. <laughs> natural. They literally say gooeys. Mm-hmm. That's so funny and weird. I love it. What well, else would you put? Gooey. Oh, I, I just G-U-I. said G-U-I. That's Gooies. how I read it. Words are hard for you today, bud. <sighs> Good lord. Find your pictures. I'm not even working right now. <laughs> so the director. Boots Riley. So Boots the House Down Riley. 